0: This episode is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author chris lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 151. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk, I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. So, let's kick things off with this week's story. Today, I'm bringing you Chapter 9 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show... Go back to episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City police detective Catherine Katane has been on administrative leave for more than a month. She is frustrated, angry, and plagued by frequent flashbacks to the terrifying battle under the Citadel, where she killed a human thrall of the vampire syndicate. To make matters worse, Kate is isolated from the people who care most about her. Her parents live far away, her partner David is on a secret mission for the Majestrix on the other side of the planet, and she's been avoiding her best friend, the vampire medical examiner Morgan Drowling, for reasons she can't even explain to herself. Her only regular companion is John, an incubus priest of the Church of Hedonism, who gives her mind-blowing sex while feeding on her life force. Lately, it's the only way Kate can get a good night's sleep. Her police psychologist, Dr. Jared Tamlin, says that Kate is being uncooperative with her therapy, and refuses to clear her for active duty. After being invited to visit the Elite Special Investigations Division, though, Kate may finally have a way to get back into action. The captain of SID, a charismatic androgyne named Rowan Shaw, wants to recruit Kate for their team. Shaw has their own staff psychologist and enough political connections to give them a lot of discretion in how they run their operation Shaw tells Kate that if she puts in for a transfer to SID Shaw will make sure she gets back on active duty After receiving such good news Kate was in the mood to celebrate accompanied by John she went to a favorite dive bar on street side where she tried to dance and drink her problems away but things didn't go quite the way she planned and now Kate is dealing with the morning after. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and Read by Chris Lester Chapter 9 Friday, May 18th Kate awoke to a pounding headache, and a mouth so dry that her tongue felt like it was made of sandpaper. She was confused. She tried to remember how she'd gotten to bed. Failing that, she tried to remember when they'd left the bar. Nothing. This is not happening, she told herself. I have a freaking eidetic memory. Remembering things is what I do. She gradually became aware that there was another person in the bed with her. John. He was lying close behind her, one hand on her hip, not quite in full spoons position, but definitely still intimate. Did we have sex? I don't remember. She extricated herself from the bed without waking him, then lifted the edge of the covers. John was still in his clothes from last night. That's weird. Kate's bladder twinged in warning, so she put further investigation on hold and went to answer nature's call. She had just flushed and started washing her hands when her stomach heaved. She turned back around, fell to her knees, and managed to get the lid open, before she vomited what felt like a third of her body mass into the open bowl. The nausea came in waves, the smell of her own sick triggering fresh bouts of vomiting. At last, she fell onto her side next to the toilet, her whole body shaking, her naked skin covered in cold sweat. She lay there, panting, and envied the dead. Eventually, she pulled herself to her feet again, rinsed her mouth out in the sink repeatedly, then gargled with mouthwash until she could no longer taste her own puke. She drank straight from the tap for a full minute, then pulled out a bottle of ibuprofen and swallowed three of them. By now she was shivering and covered in goose flesh, so she turned on the shower, set the dial to just shy of scalding, and climbed in. She closed her eyes, braced herself against the wall, and let the water course over her head and shoulders. She ran back over yesterday's memories, trying to piece them together. Captain Shaw had offered her a way to get back on duty, She remembered that very clearly. She remembered putting on her Kathleen Kittredge persona and taking John to the bar where she often met her street-side clients. She remembered her first drink, and her second. She remembered dancing. After that, everything went to pieces, a scattered jumble of images and impressions, and then... nothing. So that's what blacking out feels like. Kate had heard of such things, but it had never happened to her before. It didn't seem like something that should be able to happen to her, not with her memory. For a second, Kate was actually scared. Then again, maybe this isn't such a bad thing, being able to forget. Flash, the dead woman without a face, passed before her eyes, as vivid and horrible as the first time she'd seen it. Fuck! Kate slammed her fist against the wall in frustration. Of all the fucking things I've seen, why does that one have to stay in my head? Why can't I forget that? A light knock sounded on the open bathroom door. Everything okay in here? John asked. Kate scoffed. Oh, sure, just peachy. I'm discovering what it feels like to come off being blackout drunk. I know, John said and he sounded sympathetic, at least. How's your head? I got you to take some water and vitamins before you slept. Thanks, Kate said. She was simultaneously grateful for John's thoughtfulness, and irritated that this, too, was another thing she could not remember. My head's killing me, but I guess it could have been worse. How much did I drink last night, anyway? Four shots and a beer that I saw, John said. Plus you took essence. Kate stuck her head out from behind the shower curtain and stared at him. Tell me you're joking. I wish. Where the fuck did I get Essence? John shrugged. Some guy at the bar. I didn't know him. You downed it before I could talk you out of it. Kate winced. Shit. Blackout me is an idiot. No argument here, John said. He reached up and touched her cheek, a strangely tender gesture. Are you all right? The touch felt better than Kate expected, even as it made her uncomfortable. She looked away. I'll be fine. She paused. John, did we fuck last night? No. Kate looked back at him. His amber eyes stared into hers, his expression completely unguarded. As a cop, she dealt with a lot of liars. That wasn't what they looked like. Did I want to? She asked. Desperately, John admitted. There was whining. Kate blushed at that. So, why didn't you do it? John's eyebrows went up. Why didn't I fuck a woman who is obviously too impaired to give consent? Kate opened her mouth, then closed it again. I. Wow. Okay, when you put it that way. John smiled. He leaned forward and kissed her lightly on the lips. I like my partners to remember being with me, he said mildly. Take your time. I'll have breakfast ready when you come out. Kate washed and rinsed and stood under the water until it ran cold. She tried not to think about last night, or the dark turn her celebration had taken, but her thoughts kept circling back to it anyway. She wondered at her own behavior what she could remember, and what John had told her. Why had she had so much to drink? Why add drugs into the mix on top of that? She could only guess at the logic of those decisions, and they didn't seem to make much sense. I was trying to have fun. She remembered that, at least. Captain Shaw had given her good news. She had a way to get back to work. It would take time for the transfer to go through, of course— Bureaucracy always had to have its say, but it would happen, and soon. She should be happy. She should feel... something. She'd tried. She'd smiled to John, and then gone off to do the things she did when she was happy. Get out around other people, dance, listen to music, have a drink or two to relax. Fake it till you make it, right? She'd always been good at cheering herself up. Sure, she'd had hard days at work, but she could snap herself out of it. So why didn't it work this time? She'd done all the right things. Except that one or two drinks had become four or five, she'd danced hard enough to get a wicked case of dehydration, and apparently she'd thrown essence on top of the mix. All to... what? To feel something. She was so damn tired. I'm losing my mind. Captain Shaw, I hope you get that transfer through fast. She toweled off, put on a bra and panties, and ran a brush through her hair. She looked at herself in the mirror. Her sunny gold complexion, her green eyes, her auburn hair. It was all wrong. She focused on her center, called up a whisper of power, and recast the glamour that turned her into Kathleen Kittredge. The black hair, the pale skin, the dark and haunted looking eyes, even the twisted scar across her face-they seemed to fit right now, like a comfortable pair of old jeans. Everything about the Kittredge persona said, Don't fuck with me. Kate wrapped herself in it like armor. She put on some tight-fitting black jeans and an old band t-shirt. She checked her mobile phone. Morgan had texted back during the night, confirming her availability for dinner on Saturday, and asking if she could bring a date. That's fine, Kate texted back. She tried to think what might sound good for dinner tomorrow. A dozen possibilities danced through her memory, but none of them sounded any better or worse than the others. She sent a second text. Can you pick out a good place and tell John? Surprise me. There would be no answer now, of course. It was already after 10 a.m., and Morgan would be sleeping the proverbial and literal sleep of the dead. But Kate trusted that she would be more than willing to handle the details of Kate's birthday dinner. She left her phone on the bed and went out to the kitchen. True to his word, John had a plate of eggs and buttered toast waiting for her along with a cup of black coffee, a few vitamins, and a tall glass of her post-workout drink mix. She dug in without a word. Now that she was done throwing up, her nausea had abated, and her stomach had announced that it was ravenous. Besides, she knew the food would help with the rest of the hangover symptoms. John sat down across from her with his own food. He added milk and sugar to his coffee, the heretic. So we ran into a friend of yours last night, he said. Oh, Eli. Kate cursed. Who was it? A little rat morph guy. You said he'd helped you when you crashed your swoop the other night. Kate frowned. Yeah, Lyle Delane. We're not friends, he's just another racer who saw I needed help. I guess he figured he owed me. I helped his cousin out of a tight spot a while back. Got it, John said. Anyway, he asked for you to call him as soon as possible. He pulled a folded bar napkin out of his pocket and passed it to Kate. There was a phone number on the inside. He said it was important. Huh, Kate said. He must have come to the bar looking for Kittredge. I meet a lot of my informants there, so folks know it's a good place to get a hold of me. I guess he came too late, John said. Are you going to call him? Kate thought about it, then shrugged. Sure, why not? It's not like I've got anything better to do. John nodded. He ate the last few bites of his food, then downed the rest of his coffee in one long pull. I have some church business I need to take care of today. Do you want me to drop you off anywhere? No, it's all right. If I need to get anywhere I can't walk to, I can just take the bus. She hesitated. Are you coming back tonight? If you want me to, John said. Kate wasn't sure why that made her feel uncomfortable. His tone was friendly, open, inviting. Kate liked being around John. He was funny and charming and sexy as hell, and he knew how to blow her mind in bed. On the other hand, they'd just spent at least 36 hours in each other's company, including two nights together. John wasn't her boyfriend. The very idea of sexual exclusivity with him was a logical impossibility. But those tender little touches, the casual intimacies that had been accumulating between them over the last few weeks, that was dangerous ground. It wouldn't be smart to get attached to a person like John. No, I'll be all right, she said at last. You go do your thing. I'm sure Mistress Jasmine misses you. She winked, and John chuckled. All right, he said, but call me if you need me. Tomorrow I'll bring the church van, and we can take your swoop over to Callie's shop. Sounds good, Kate said. Oh, and Morgan's on board. She's going to get in touch with you about dinner plans. She gave him a smile, because she knew it would make him feel better about leaving. Thanks again for everything. Anytime. John put his dishes in the sink, gave Kate's shoulder a firm squeeze, and let himself out. With John gone, Kate cleaned up her dishes and then hunted down the burner phone she used for her Kittredge persona. She hadn't had it with her yesterday, and there were several missed calls from the same number that was on the bar napkin. She hit the callback button and waited for the call to connect. A familiar voice answered after three rings. Hello? Hi, is this Lyle? Yes. Is this Miss Kittredge? It is, Kate said, I understand you've been trying to get a hold of me. What's up? Well, I... I wanted to ask your advice, ma'am, Lyle said. I have this next-door neighbor, Mrs. Roberts. She's a sweet old lady, just really nice. I help her out with errands sometimes. Okay, Kate said, hoping Lyle would get to the point sometime today. Well, I saw her yesterday morning when I got home from my shift, and I was supposed to help her make lunch later that day but when I came over, she was gone, and I haven't seen her since. Huh, Kate said. And you're sure she wasn't just asleep and didn't hear the door? No, ma'am. Mrs. Roberts gave me a key to her apartment, in case she ever fell and hurt herself or something. When she didn't answer, I got the key and let myself in. She'd left her keys and groceries on the table. It was like she'd just disappeared. That doesn't sound good, Kate admitted. Yeah. I called the police, but they said that since Mrs. Roberts is an adult and she's not mentally ill or anything, they can't really do anything unless they suspect foul play. I tried to tell them about the keys and the groceries, but they didn't seem to think it was important. Kate sighed. It's not that it's not important. They just don't have a warrant to go into her apartment, and they can't get one unless she's missing for at least 48 hours, or there's some sign of a struggle. I didn't know that, Lyle said softly. What should I do, ma'am? I'm really worried about her. Kate chewed her bottom lip, thinking. You've still got her key, right? She gave you permission to go in? Yes, ma'am. All right. I'll come over and see if I can figure anything out. Don't touch anything else until I get there, all right? Okay, Lyle said, sounding relieved. Okay. Thank you so much, ma'am. I'm at the Grinning Apartments at Worcester and 82nd. I'm in apartment number six. Kate envisioned the city in her head and called up her rusty memories of the bus routes. I should be there in about an hour. See you then. I'll be here, ma'am. Thank you again. Kate rang off. She went to her coat closet by the door and loaded up her gear. The leather bomber jacket woven with defensive spells. The caster's belt with pockets full of reagents her silver Arthana, the ritual dagger that she used to shape her more complex magic, and her sturdy leather boots, each with a throwing knife in a hidden sheath. Her 10mm sidearm was back at the station, waiting for her return from administrative leave, but she still had her little Heckland Lynx, the 9mm pocket pistol that she normally carried as a backup. She had a holster for it that would strap to her leg near her ankle, but there was no way it would fit under these jeans, so she put the gun in one of her jacket pockets instead. Finally, she went to the spare bedroom, which she had converted into a laboratory for her magic. She packed a number of useful items into a small messenger bag, then headed out to catch the bus across town. Sanja Idril looked out over the bow of the freighter, Squinting through the morning fog, trying not to get seasick. She thought she could just barely see the city in the distance. Metamore's legendary towers, nearly as tall as the mountains around them, appeared as faint shadows through the mist. Nearer at hand stood the docks and low slung buildings of Menth, the capital's port city along the Sea of Stars. Sanja could see the imperial flag flying over the harbor vertical bands of blue, white, and blue, with three golden, tri-pointed stars in the center band. For her, that flag symbolized hope. Hope for a new life. Hope for freedom from the cruel oppression of her homeland. The island nation of Kumar had been under the whip of foreign masters for more than a century. First Yamato, and then Rukilia, had seen it as a strategically valuable holding. Ripe for colonization. Sanja didn't really understand why Kumar was important to the invaders. It didn't matter. All she knew was that she was desperate to escape, and these men had said they could help her. She had paid them everything she had for the crossing. In Metamore, she hoped she could start anew. There were others like her on the ship men and women between the ages of 15 and 50 who were strong enough to do hard work and determined enough to leave behind everything and everyone they knew. Sanja had made friends with some of them during the voyage. Their stories were both diverse and unified. No matter what their lives had been like before, they had all come to the point where just one more day under Rukilian rule was too much to bear. Some of the others gathered on deck alongside her now, straining their eyes for a view of their new homeland. The Sea of Stars was much colder than the waters around Kumar, and many of them shivered as the wind blew across the deck. Sanja imagined that wind stripping away the burdens of her past life, carrying them off of her and throwing them into the sea. She closed her eyes and smiled, feeling her long black hair whipping around her. Nearly there, nearly home. The first mate came on deck and bellowed instructions at the passengers. It was time to get back into the shipping container. Soon they would be pulling into the docks, and the ship's cargo would be inspected. If Sanja and the others were found trying to enter the Empire without papers, things would not go well for them. The first mate was vague on the specifics of what might happen, but Sanja had given up too much already to risk being turned away at the end of her journey. Once she was past customs and safely in the city, there were people who would help her, organizations who devoted themselves to assisting refugees. If she could just make it to the city, no one would send her away again. Or at least, that was what she had been told. Sanja and the other refugees filed down the narrow staircase that led to the cargo area of the ship. Like most modern freighters, it was a container ship, with hundreds of nearly identical rectangular steel boxes stacked on top of one another. The refugees walked halfway down the length of the ship and climbed ladders up to the top container in their stack. Inside, they squeezed past pallets full of computer equipment and went through a door about a meter high into a hidden compartment at the back of the container. A set of concealed vents in the roof provided air circulation. For lights, they had only a couple of cheap electric torches. The first mate had warned them that they could expect to spend several hours waiting for their container to be offloaded, inspected, and cleared through customs. After that, they would be put on a truck and taken to Metamore City. They had a couple of large plastic buckets, in case anyone had to relieve themselves, and several dozen liters of bottled water. Most of the refugees carried small duffel bags or backpacks, stuffed with extra clothes, a little food, and whatever small personal items they couldn't bear to part with. Sanja's bag contained a photo of her parents, a pocket knife her father had given her when she was twelve, and a small idol of the goddess Artela, the protector of travelers. As she crouched in her little chosen space inside the cargo container, Sanja pulled out the idol, kissed it, and whispered a prayer for their protection. She knew Artela dwelt in the elven nation of Quinardia now, but perhaps the spirits of air and water would pass the message to her just the same. The first mate came up to the container and shone his torch inside, checking each of their faces in turn. Once he was satisfied that all his passengers were accounted for, he closed the secret door and sealed them inside. Sanja heard the pallets on the other side of the wall being shifted to conceal the door, then the creak and boom of the outer door closing. There was nothing to do now but wait. The refugees, most of whom had been friendly and talkative during the long voyage, now sat or lay in silence, alone or in small groups. There was no telling how well their sounds might carry to the outside world— and some of the Metamorians were said to have the keen senses of beasts. Occasionally one refugee might whisper in the ear of another, but mostly they lay still, afraid to do more than breathe. Sanja felt it when the cargo crane offloaded their container, a sudden jerk upwards that pressed all of them against the floor, followed by a slight wobbling, lurching, unsteady feeling as the container rose into the air. They came down again less than a minute later, settling on top of another container with a clang of metal on metal. After that, nothing happened for a long time. The temperature slowly rose to more than 40 degrees inside the metal box. The refugees drank, splashed their faces with water, and lay down again to sweat. Sanja waited and prayed, and slept as much as she could in the stifling heat. Eventually, she heard voices conversing outside the container. She had no idea what they said. She spoke a little Imperial Common, but these men were speaking much faster than her teachers in school ever had, and their accent was strange to her. After a while, they moved off, and a few minutes later, the container was picked up again and set down somewhere else. Sanja heard a motor start up, and then the container began to move. So she concluded that they must be on the truck. After the hours of waiting on the docks, and the weeks at sea before that, the drive into the city seemed to be over almost before it had begun. Barely an hour after the truck had begun to move, it came to a stop and its engine turned off. A few minutes after that, Sanja heard the outer doors open and the pallets being shifted. At last, the little door was opened and two men crouched and stepped into the hidden compartment. They carried electric torches, and wore the sort of clothes Sanja had seen on imperial television programs— denim pants, t-shirts, black leather boots. They carried guns, which Sanja had only ever seen on Rukilian guards and soldiers, and each of them wore a red bandana, one around his neck and the other around his forehead. They looked around at the refugees and took a head count. Okay, the taller of the two men said. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Metamore City. He spoke common, but he enunciated his words clearly and spoke slowly enough for Sanja to follow. He paused, and one of the other refugees translated his words into Kumari. He nodded to the translator and gestured for her to come forward and stand beside him. Outside we have men and women waiting to take you to your new lives, the guard said. He paused after each sentence to let the translator speak. You will work hard. You will work for many hours. Some of the work you do will be difficult or unpleasant. But if you were afraid of difficulty, you would not be here. He smiled at them. There were some knowing chuckles in the crowd, especially after the translator had spoken but Metamore City is a place where everyone has a chance for a new life. If you work hard and do what you are told, you will earn that new life. Sanja's heart swelled with hope. This was what she had dreamed of, what she had prayed for. She was not afraid of working hard. Even if she had to scrub toilets or clean sewers, she would rather do that as a free woman than spend one more day bowing and scraping before her oppressors. Please follow us outside now and form a line next to the truck, the guard said. After the translation came, the refugees fell into step behind him. Some had been weakened by the long hours in the terrible heat, and these had to lean on their neighbors in order to walk. They emerged into a large, high building of steel and concrete. Surrounded by wooden crates and shipping pallets that had been offloaded from the truck, and at least four others like it. There were more guards here, dressed like the man who had first spoken to them. All were armed, and all wore at least one bright red article of clothing, usually a hat or bandana. The guards distributed little pieces of paper to the refugees. Each one had a number on it and the guards sternly instructed them to not trade numbers or lose their slips of paper. There were others here as well, serious-looking men and women in business suits and severe gray dresses. They seemed to be of a variety of racial and ethnic backgrounds—light-skinned Kitchlanders, pale and freckled Morans, eastern Hanese and Yamatoans, olive-skinned Songgefilders, and dark-complected Arambians. Sanja was very thankful that she saw no Ruchelians among their number. There were more Kitchlanders than anything else, but that was only to be expected in Metamor. They all looked like business people to Sanja, and she suspected that these were the middle management for whatever organization had arranged for their transport into the Empire. The managers, if that was what they were, walked slowly down the line of refugees, inspecting each of them in turn. Each manager asked them different questions. One muscular man wanted to know which of the refugees had military experience, or training in the martial arts. A Kitchlander woman asked which of them could read and write well in common. A Hanese man asked about their experience working on vehicles and machines. One woman stood for a long time just staring at Sanja, examining every inch of her body. She was a tall and beautiful Sangefelder, with dark hair and eyes, but her expression was remote. Cold. She looked at Sanja the way Sanja's mother looked at fish at the market. Turn around, the woman said. Sanja did so, turning in a slow circle. Smile, the woman said. Sanja felt uncomfortable, but she made herself show the woman the best smile she could manage. Open your mouth let me see your teeth. Sanja cocked her head, confused. Surely she had misheard the woman. I'm sorry, she said in common. The woman's expression darkened. She spoke to Sanja in halting Kumari. She opens her mouth. I watch her tooth. Hesitantly, Sanja opened her mouth. The woman grabbed Sanja's lips and pulled them back then stuck a finger in her mouth, feeling around. Sanja was so shocked at the violation that she just stood there, dumbstruck. Surely this couldn't be acceptable behavior, even in a place as strange as Metamore. The Sangafilder woman nodded curtly. Good, she said, and then moved on. The next man asked Sanja questions about cooking, but she was still so dazed that she just shook her head, unable to say anything. When all of the managers had gone down the line, they gathered in a group some distance away and began conferring with one another. Occasionally, one of them would turn and point to a particular refugee, but for the most part, they acted as if the refugees weren't even there. Sanja couldn't make out any of what they were saying. After perhaps half an hour, the managers seemed to come to an agreement. Each one came back down the line, this time carrying a pad of paper with a list of numbers. When they came to a refugee whose slip of paper matched one of the numbers on their pad, they would cross out the number and order the refugee to come with them. None of the refugees made any argument. The Sanga filter woman came back, and as she stood in front of Sanja, Sanja saw that her own number was one of the numbers on the woman's pad. The woman crossed out the number, then pointed to Sanja. You, follow me, she said. Sanja followed. They continued down the line, and the woman picked out a dozen others, three men and nine women. All of them were young, healthy, and good-looking. When they reached the end of the line, the woman gestured for her followers to gather next to a large skimmer van at the far end of the building. Two more guards were waiting by the doors of the van. The woman turned and addressed the group. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Madame Petra. Renee She said a word Sanja did not know. A few blocks south of the citadel, it is your responsibility to care for all the needs of my customers. Their enjoyment is your greatest concern. Serve well, and you will be rewarded. Disobey, and you will be punished. Do you understand? Sanja and the others nodded. So, she would be performing some kind of customer service. That was not so bad. She had been worried when Madame Petra stuck her hand in her mouth, but she supposed that the Madame's customers probably wanted their servers to be attractive and healthy. The Rekyllian soldiers who filled the bars and restaurants of Kumar had felt the same way. But surely the customers in Metamore will treat us much better than the soldiers did, Sanja thought. Things were turning out even better than she had hoped. Madame Petra ordered them to board the skimmer van. Sanja did so gladly. She could hardly wait to begin her new life. And that's the end of Chapter 9. Come back next time for Chapter 10, when John has to check in with his boss at the Temple of Hedonism. I don't have a weekly writing report this week, folks. I spent the last week of May rereading what I've written so far for Operation Ibex, my Artax adventure story. Once I reloaded the story into my head, I started writing again on Friday, June 1st. Check back next week and I'll let you know how it's going. Over on the Patreon feed, I got two new patrons in May. Please welcome Radical Geek and Mark. Joining my Patreon feed is the best way to support this show and help me keep making it. For just $3 a month, you can help me pay for expenses like web hosting, media servers, business software, artwork and printing costs—all the stuff that helps me bring these stories to life. I also record behind-the-scenes commentaries, and commission story artwork from independent artists, which are exclusive to my patrons. I fell behind on publishing my commentaries with all the recent wedding stuff, but I have a backlog of them recorded and ready to go as soon as I can get them edited. Watch for those in the coming weeks. To learn more about becoming a patron, head on over to patreon.com slash Lester. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. And now, the feedback. Sharon writes, Hi, Chris. I first heard your voice in Ms. Abby's Guild of the Cowry Catchers. Over the years of searching podcasted books and audio entertainment, I finally found a few podcasts that just keep me coming back for more, and the last month I've been catching up with all your podcasts. I'm always fascinated with how well certain people can tell a story, and you are definitely one of them. So great job, and keep up the good work— I enjoy your podcasts immensely, and I do wish you and your wife the best. P.S. I'm from South Africa, and one of my biggest wishes are to one day visit the Great States and attend Balticon or something similar to meet a lot of you guys face-to-face, including T. Morris, Pip Ballantyne, Ms. Abby Hilton, and Dr. Nathan Lowell. So, here's to wishing. Cheers! And cheers back to you, Sharon, and thanks for the letter. I do hope we get a chance to meet in person someday. Mel and I have talked for years about going to visit South Africa, so if we can ever make it happen, I'll be sure to get in touch. Andrew wrote this letter on the day of my wedding. Hi Chris, I've been meaning to send this for months now, but I wish you and your wife a wonderful wedding, and a marriage that flourishes and grows. Thanks so much, Andrew. Our wedding day turned out beautifully, and we had a fantastic time with our friends and family. Special thanks to all the Metamore City folks who came out for the event, including our official librarian, Mildred Cady, Heather Nowak, the original voice of Abby Preston, Sarah Lloyd, my best woman and the voice of Danny Shirabi, and Beth Racine, who played Lady Isabel in the Metamore City live show, Rafa Aliri and the Ghostly Bride. It was a very special day and I'm immensely grateful to all the wonderful friends who made it possible. G'day, Chris. It's Jason from Niceville in Florida calling again. I was listening to an NPR podcast promo talking about a writer's muse, and it got me wondering about what the concept of a muse really is to you specifically. Is it just a falsehood, perhaps more of an arbitrary word, describing a structured creative process that you've developed through your years of practice and turning creative ideas into well-written stories? Or is she, he, it, perhaps almost a more, and I have to use it, a fae-like entity that blesses, perhaps even curses you with material? Or is it something else? And the second part to the question do you sometimes get to a point where, for no consciously apparent reason, your muse decides the story needs to take a turn in quite a different direction than perhaps the structured part of your brain originally envisaged and perhaps wasn't planning on? Anyway, keep up the good work. Cheers. Hi, Jason. That's a great question. The muse has always been a metaphor for me, not something that I believed in, per se, but a way of talking about the feeling of creative inspiration. When you're in touch with your muse, you're in that state that psychologists call flow. You're fully engaged in the writing process in a state of energized focus, total absorption, and enjoyment in the process of that act of creation. The ideas and images are clear in your head, the words come easily, and your word count goes up dramatically. It's a wonderful experience, and it's easy to feel like you're connected to something larger than yourself. Maybe even something divine. When I was younger, I didn't understand the nature of that flow state, and it was always surprising and exciting when it happened to me. I had a very romantic image of the muse, in the literary sense of the word. I saw her as a fickle and capricious goddess who would bestow her gifts at random times, and seemingly without reason. I saw the locus of control for my creativity as being something outside myself beyond my ability to control. I think that's a big part of why my writing output was so slow and uneven for so many years. I thought my creativity was dictated by my circumstances. As I've gotten older, I've come to realize that creativity doesn't have to wait for those moments of seemingly divine inspiration. Writing is a skill that you can get better at as you put in more time and practice, just like playing an instrument, or shooting a basketball, or cooking. It's possible to experience flow when you're doing any of these things, but you don't have to enter flow in order to play a song well, or shoot a free throw, or make a tasty dinner. And you don't have to enter flow to tell a good story, either. The slow, disciplined work of writing, a few hundred words at a time, can get you results that are just as good, and it's a lot more reliable than waiting for the muse to strike. The most important thing is to show up and put in the time. I've been away from my writing for several weeks now, and I'm itching to get back into it. Lots of things in our daily lives can interfere with our ability to write. Good things, like honeymoon vacations and time with loved ones, and bad things, like illness and stress and household emergencies. In the midst of these very real barriers and obstacles, the last thing I need to do is add another layer of anxiety by worrying about my muse. Sometimes inspiration comes easily, and sometimes it comes slowly. Sometimes I can make a lot of words in a writing session. Sometimes I don't manage more than a few sentences. But the most important thing that I can do is show up and tell a story, the best that I can. You asked if my stories sometimes go in a different direction from the one I had planned. That happens to me all the time. Sometimes, I consciously realize that the original path I had in mind doesn't work for the characters, and given the situation they find themselves in, they need to take a different path. At other times, the new direction arises spontaneously while I'm writing, and I don't figure out why until later. That's when it can feel like the characters have a mind of their own, or like my muse is dictating a change in direction. But either way, I've learned to trust my storytelling instincts— and follow the new direction, even if that means throwing out part of my outline. There's a part of my brain that knows the right way to tell a story, and usually, when I trust it, good things happen. Whether you call that a muse, a genius spirit, or a complex set of neurochemical reactions, that's entirely up to you. Thanks for the question. Finally, an announcement. I'll be in Toronto for the week of July 4th through 11th, attending the Toronto Fringe Festival. I'm going to see Six Stories Told at Night, the live theatre version of KT Briskey's Parsec Award-winning podcast. If you haven't heard about Six Stories yet, check out my interview with Katie in episode 67 of this podcast. Anyway, if you're going to be in Toronto during that time and you'd like to meet up, let me know. I would love the chance to meet more listeners, and maybe we can arrange to see Katie's play together. You can learn more about the show at www.gangwaytheatre.com That's spelled the Canadian way, T-H-E-A-T-R-E, and at fringetoronto.com I hope to see you there. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com to leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension two five five zero eight two, 82 followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash authorchrislester, the fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at authorchrislester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts it makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under our Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.